And welcome back to the Dew Point Report, the Digital Electronic World Point Report, where we explore the duality of our digital lives as we balance them with our tactile lives in this world which explores both existences in a never complex world. In our previous segment, we talked about why colleges question whether they should rename their institutions of learning. And I told you that I would read to you what was entered into the record in April of 2020. Actually, not April of 2020, August of 2020. And the significance of the comments. They were entered into the record as part of a subcommittee that was developed for Cabrillo College as it explores whether or not it's going to rename its college. And the rationale being that it has been brought to the college's attention. The explorer Juan Cabrillo had some history of colonialism that has been controversial and it led to five series of learning perspectives that the college made public as part of a learning session series that it held for the public to learn about the college's history, ranging from the history of the college's beginning, the beginning of the college, the history of the area, the history of Cabrillo himself, and definitions of colonialism. But what I wanted to do at this moment is read to you the comments that I submitted that were to have been read into the record. It begins. From the desk of Margarita Correa, former trustee Cabrillo College Board, 2012 to 2016. Former Trustee Cabrillo College Foundation, 2012 to 2016. Former Trustee Oversight Board of the former Redevelopment Agency for the City of Watsonville, representing Cabrillo College, 2012 to 2016. General comments for the record directed to the Cabrillo College Board of Trustees Subcommittee Regarding the request to change the name of the college, entered into the record August 3rd, 2020. Good afternoon, Board of Trustees and community members called to serve on this subcommittee regarding the recent request to rename Cabrillo College. My name is Margarita Carrillo, former trustee, as noted above. 
I would like to thank you for allowing me to read my comments into the public record this evening. The Baharonian noted in a recent article complexities in changing the Cabrillo College name, and as I sought to embrace the magnanimous effort described by some of the college leaders, I thought to myself, could it be that the Cabrillo Monument in San Diego could be affected as described? Why would they have to rename the monument as well? We are small and dear Cabrillo College. Actually, we are as expansive a college as our classes. As expansive as our distance learning can reach, we are as local as we are global. For every class to be successful, there are students. For every student, there is a different family background. That different family background has a unique family history. That unique family history has a legacy. I don't say this to dwell simply on the concept of changing a name, as I know how complex that can be in and of itself. Having gone through a name change myself through a divorce, there are many details to weave through the process. Yet let's hone in on the true changes Cabrillo College has witnessed now and since 1959. The campus of today is not the same campus of 1959. Why change the name now? As trustees, this decision you are tasked with is more than a signage update. Because as the world has duly noted and been witness to in recent social justice reawakenings, a word can carry much meaning beyond the spoken and written. An example of such is Princeton University, who recently came under fire for its dismal history and decided to rename its Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. As someone once said to me, you can't be all things to all people. Someone will be in disagreement with whichever new name you select. It will be necessary for you to think long and steady about this decision before you vote. For example, are you aligning your, your decision to change the name to the future program goals of the college? Because though that might seem prudent, the goals may change, and you could find yourself having this very discussion in five years. Unless, of course, you are completely redesigning the college to a specialty upon which a new name could be appropriate to the specialty. I am aware that many locations are removing statues, uh, 
or restructuring frameworks as they realize the social imperatives of no longer honoring painful pasts that reflect racial injustices brought to light by the Black Lives Matter movement. Ask yourself, will a name change bring forth the institutional resilience necessary for Cabrillo College to forge its way academically through the 21st century and beyond? Or is it the innovations, breakthroughs as we have often referred to them, the talented faculty, staff, admins, management, and everyone else who helps ensure this campus remains steadfastly brilliant, that will help it poised for the future, or a combination of both. Lastly, as an investor in the college via the Career College Foundation, I have seen the success of recruitment efforts in who studies at today's Cabrillo, and have read of the plight of the students who need additional scholarship support to remain academically fit. I am proud to have been able to help students in stay in school since 2014 with the small STEM scholarship I make available yearly, yet am aware of how daunting your task must be to keep students enrolled. There is no shortage of challenge being faced by students in today's classroom, and you have swelled the halls of knowledge with your ability to understand the needs of the English language learner, the lifelong learner, and the I want a certificate please learner, the I am an honors program learner, and will transfer learner, the veterans programs learner, and the I am every kind of learner, and any other learner I have missed, such that this very subcommittee speaks to your ability to open to listening to all points of view before making a decision. Do you remember the unique family legacy noted previously? Ponder for a moment that you can't just change a name and expect to have unwound each family legacy. In my humble opinion, if people are truly serious about not wanting anything to do with the name Cabrillo, then they have to be honest with themselves because we are constantly changing because we are learning about the very names we think we already know so much about. The San Diego Union Tribune published an article where a historian by the name Kramer traced Juan Cabrillo's ancestry to Spain, not Portugal. Huh, isn't that interesting? And without Spanish immigrants, I would not be having this conversation with you because as a Mexican-American, I would not have dreamt to have been in roles of leadership as I have been previously with some of you here. My ancestry is mixed with grandparents who have relatives from Spain and great-grandparents who were Huichol, indigenous. 
My point is, without a country as diverse as ours and unique legacies as they be, where would Cabrillo be today? Before I became trustee, I took courses here as a student. I have had siblings who studied here. After I became trustee, I have had relatives who studied here. Legacies continue, is my point. The Cabrillo legacy will continue whether you change the name or not, because it's the quality of the education that is critical to any quality place of learning. Which this is, the legacy of my relatives on this campus dates back to the 1970s. I am just one of many. In closing, it is not for me to demand that you change the name or keep it. That is what you are tasked with. I simply felt compelled to remind you of the heavy burden of decisions such as these. They have, they do have unforeseen circumstances that much like the peeling back of an onion, you don't notice the deepest losses of some changes until you are at the point of the peel back. And by then, you can't undo the decisions made years before. Much like many members of the scientific community who regretted officially banishing Pluto from the solar system and went on interviews because of the backlash, they recognized change is difficult. Six one way, half dozen to the other. And always know Pluto is still out there, still aware that it is part of the family the solar system family. Even if you do change the name, anyone who ever attended Cabrillo College from 1959 to the point of a name change will always say Cabrillo, carry a Cabrillo transcript, a Cabrillo legacy, have a Cabrillo story, realize a Cabrillo presence. Some things can't be undone or erased. After all, it is said, that the last shall be first. So in an ironic spin of saving grace, Pluto will be there in the end for the entire universe. You never know, stranger things have been known to happen. We just returned two men from the International Space Station as part of a most unique public-private partnership. Who would have thunk it possible in 1973. Thanks for listening. Be well and good evening. End of comments. And you just heard me reading to you the general comments, public comments, that I submitted to the subcommittee for Cabrillo College as they explored the possible renaming of the college. It has not been decided yet, but this was submitted into the record August 3rd of 2020. And though not the entire comments that I read in were kept, because this is longer than the three minutes allotted, only the three-minute portion would have been allowed in. I am reading to you, or have read to you, the entire portion for the purpose that you be aware of why it's necessary to 
enter comments when you think it's a necessary point to be made. And in this instance, since we are talking about why colleges question the renaming of their learning institutions, I had entered this into the general comments. And though the comments were longer than the allotted portion, I submitted them in writing. And so I know that the, the length was edited. I still realize the importance. And so in the next segment of the episode, we'll talk about why so many different learning institutions have really approached the subject of uh, talking about their college names and where their names have become a point of controversy and some of them have actually renamed themselves. Where some have renamed their entire colleges, some have renamed portions of their colleges. And you heard me mention some in, one example in particular. So we'll talk about that in the next segment of this episode after the break. Thanks for listening on the Dewpoint Report with your host, Margarita. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dewpoint Report, the Digital Electronic World Point Report. And so there have been many conversations about changing names and the importance of why colleges often bring up the conversation of name change. You may or may not be aware that this has been happening throughout the country and for various reasons. I was asked in 2000, late 2019, if I wanted to participate in a subcommittee that was going to be occurring to explore the possible name change of Cabrillo College, which is a community college that has been around since 1959. And the reason that they asked if I wanted to participate was because I had once upon a time been a trustee of not only the college, but also the college foundation. And as a trustee of the College Foundation, they thought perhaps I had some insight to provide on the subcommittee since there had been a spot, a position available and open to community members on the subcommittee. And so I pondered the thought, do I have time? Do I have hours to give? Because this can be something that is time-consuming, and it requires a lot of attention to detail as well. And I thought, yeah, that would be great. It's really important. And I offered up my time, my energy, and then I was told it wasn't going to be necessary because they were going to be not needing the community position on the subcommittee. And so I thought, okay, that's fine. Well, suffice to say, Eventually, I was asked if I wanted to know about the meeting where they would be asking for general comments on the subject. And I put together a letter, which I will read to you in a moment. 
And this letter is my general comments for the record to the subcommittee. And the reason that I wrote this, and you'll see in the comments themselves, is for the purpose of allowing the people who are making the decision to make their decision. And then in the subsequent segments of this episode, which I'm dedicating to why colleges and universities take up the conversation of whether they should change their college or university name and how heavy that conversation can truly be. And so that's sufficient on the background on the rationale. Let's begin. I will give you the official notation that I wrote, and I'll actually read it all from beginning to end. When we resume in the next segment. after this break. And welcome back to another segment of this episode, which focuses very clearly on the question of why colleges and universities really have taken up the question of whether or not they should rename their colleges and universities. Learning institutions have really taken up this conversation quite seriously for the very reason of the conversation that has to do with how, as the country has taken up the understanding of what are the historical contexts upon which where, if the country begins to understand and has begun to understand and does understand more clearly the history of slavery in this country, as the country undid a lot of its slavery by recognizing the inappropriateness of slavery, how is it then that so much statuary was dedicated to the representation of people who reflected a generation that owned slaves. And a lot of the conversation has brought up a deeper understanding of how, as the country really changed generationally, through an understanding of, yes, people can change. People can have an awareness, an understanding of moving forward through contexts that are different from one generation to another, meaning that people can be one way through one point in time because of the surroundings of that particular point in time within the historical context 
of that time reference. And then as things change, so do the people and the historical references of that point in time. Correct? Not everyone does change with the historical contexts, but there are many who do. And there are people dedicated to understanding the historical contexts and helping people in new generations understand those historical contexts so that things do not get repeated in such a painful way. And though there are people that dedicate their lives to maintaining painful structures that stay as such. The protections of the country, because we are a nation of liberties and protections of those liberties are essential. Those liberties meaning liberties that really stem across all freedoms there is a juxtaposition of complicated awareness as to whose freedoms are more free than another. For example, if two people are standing next to each other and each of them is saying that they have protections of free speech, if one person is exclaiming something negative and one person is exclaiming something positive, within the context of the other person hearing it, who is more free? The person saying something negative or the person saying something positive? Therein is such the complication of the juxtaposition of what is the definition of being free. To the person that fights for there to be such a freedom, they may not see the complication. They only see the fact that they fight for a sense of there to be such a freedom. To the person that wants the liberties, they may want only their liberty and not the other's liberty. To the person that wants to protect the liberties, they might only see it from the sense that they want to protect liberties from a broad brush approach. And so from the sense that our country is a complex country, Over the years, we have seen this question of what does it mean to have freedoms that speak to the freedom of speech, that speak to the freedom to live in a country that protects such freedoms and that allows people to embrace the ability to 
have spaces that are safe. for such democratic principles. But there truly are spaces that can't go without the recognition that there are sometimes areas that cannot be ignored or discounted, meaning you cannot go beyond a certain threshold. You cannot ignore the truth of a space that cannot be overtaken. And when I say discounted, I mean, there are areas that are golden. that cannot become unruly. And without democratic principles. For when they do end up without these simple democratic principles, it is noticeable that something is lost in the truth of what our essential strength as a democracy is meant to be. Now, I don't mean to get existential in this whole conversation of really what is a simple question as to really should the colleges, these learning institutions, rename themselves? Because it really comes down to a simple notion. If they truly rename themselves, they aren't any less the quality institutions that they always were by virtue of renaming themselves. That's the simplicity of it all. But the truth of the matter is, if they do something egregious, the name and changing the name is not going to make the institution any better. What will make it better is a move towards healing the campus because a name is not going to improve the circumstances overnight. And that is really the crux of the situation. Because if what many of these 
the conversations are trying to get at, whether it's through any of the movements that have come forward, because Black Lives Matter conversations have really brought a larger conversation to the surface, but but really it is bringing small conversations together and making them into a very pronounced conversation that many are beginning to realize was always there for quite some time. It just brought it to surface. And many people realized, oh, wow, this is actually something that so many people wanted to have a conversation about. Just brought it up to a crescendo for so many to be able to discuss. And the reason that I say that is sometimes it takes a common denominator to be able to make people realize this is something that people do want to converse about and they want to bring it up to other people to be able to discuss and then be able to have the conversation so that then it becomes something very important, not only to put on agendas, but to make an important facet of realization that whether it's questioning the changing of the name or what is the rationale behind changing the name because what the colleges and universities are realizing is it isn't just about the name it's about what does make a quality institution because it truly isn't just the name it is about the quality instruction of a college and what goes into the naming of a college what goes into the quality of instruction because once you get into the details of what went into the naming of a college or an institution of learning in the beginning, then you begin to question, how much would it actually cost to rename this? And how much will it sustain over the years if it's renamed? And then if we're going to rename it, what would we rename it? And who is going to have the say in renaming it? So on and so forth, and so many other questions. So it isn't just about a name. It really is about all the quality questions, all the stakeholders in the process. Because in the beginning of an institution, it may have been one process, but now in the 21st century, it is an entirely different process. And what is that? What does that look like? And so this multifaceted process is not only intriguing, not only is it community involved, but to the depths that it involves people and community members and stakeholders, it brings to light so much more.
And therein is what brings us to the next portion of the conversation, which is why due diligence in this process is so important. And what we see about that is going to be discussed in the next segment, which we'll bring up in the next conversation after this break. Thanks for listening on the Dew Point Report with your host, Margarita. And welcome back to another segment of the Dew Point Report, the Digital Electronic World Point Report, which continues to explore the duality of living in our digital world as well as our tactile world and how the two are often entangled with each other, yet so different. And in this episode, we do take up the most complex conversation of why colleges, both community colleges and four-year learning institutions, universities, have been taking up the question for years now as to whether they should rename their learning institutions or not. And the question is, why should they rename the learning institutions? We've already talked about this in a couple of segments as to the depth to which the learning institutions can go to. And I've given an example in particular as to one community college and what they have gone through and are still in the process of going through and to when they will conclude their process. But also having given an example of one university that went through a process and decided they would not rename their entire university, but they actually did rename one of their colleges within the university, which was clearly noted as one of the most egregious within the university. And if you were listening to one of the particular segments of this episode, you would know which one I was referring to. And so now in this particular portion of the episode, I wanted to delve a little more into why am I even having this conversation when so many of anyone who has even taken up this conversation are thinking, oh my goodness, again with this topic, with this conversation? Isn't it already something where the chapter has been closed on this topic and can we just move on already? Well, here's the thing. Yes and no. Yes, many people have already taken up the conversation, had their moment in point in time and, and being able to have their general comments listened to and entered into their records and then moved on. But the point of the matter is, it actually isn't as simple a process as possible because even where and upon which, if universities decide to make a change to a name, it isn't inexpensive and it isn't simple. For private universities, it may be a little bit easier if they have endowments where they can decide if they have a benefactor or if they have someone who decides they will pay for it themselves to have it renamed. It may be uh, not as difficult. For public institutions, the question remains who is going to pay for a name change if a name change is called for. 
if a name change is not called for, then the decision is how is that communicated and was the process fair in listening to everyone involved? So putting that out there, let's discuss the fact that what is due diligence in something such as this? And does due diligence look the same in a public institution as it does in a private institution? Because when the country has taken up the conversation about making education free, particularly free for two-year colleges, community college education, really the conversation began many years ago, because after all, there used to be free community college many, many years ago, decades ago. And in fact, the UC system did enjoy um, a series of free access to free university for quite a while. Now, that doesn't mean that the university system in the University of California system has always been free. There are uh, expenses involved with um, fees and books and etc. But the point that I'm making is there are people who still think of the fact that they want to go back to a free education system. And there are people who often question what would that look like if it truly was free? And there are people who have gone through the University of California system and having had paid for their tuition, realize, well, then what does it look like if someone has already paid for it, an entire tuition? It doesn't mean that those individuals get reimbursed for the years that they paid for their tuition. So it speaks to the same point that when you change a policy so grand as something like making tuition free, it doesn't mean that all the people who have already paid for their education suddenly get reimbursed. That's not how some of these huge policy changes work. The same applies for naming, renaming an institution of learning. You don't all of a sudden decide that you resend transcripts to all the people who went to an institution of learning for all the decades that it was named the other name because it already had been that particular name. But you have to be cognizant of the fact that all of the people who are alums of that particular institution for the period of time that it was named, the particular name that suddenly becomes egregious to society because it now has become awakened to a new understanding, you can't then create a level of disdain for the people who attended while it was called whatever it was called that is no longer acceptable to have been called that. Because at that particular point in time, when individuals went to school at that learning institution, when it was called that, it was acceptable to go there. And it may have been a quality learning institution at that time. So point being, I want to introduce into this segment an important article that was written. And the reason that I introduce it and why I call it important is because sometimes when people say things, they give themselves a level of importance that actually can be 
it can bring a level of energy to something. There's positive energy and there's negative energy. And just like there's, there are storms that... in an ocean can create waves where there weren't any previous to the storm. One has to recognize that sometimes people who write have a level of responsibility in how they write, particularly in this instance, and I'll explain. This article that I'm going to quote a portion of is written from a professor of English from the very college that I was talking about before that is questioning whether it should rename itself or not. And I call it to question, and I'll explain why in a moment. But let me quote for a moment a section from this article. Quote, Just beyond the bust, of course, is the Cabrillo College Watsonville Center, named after Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo, the discoverer, in quotes, of California. The college faces a similar fate. The Cabrillo Board of Trustees has been called upon to account for the symbolism of the college's name given his participation in conquest, slavery, and sex trafficking, particularly in southern Mexico and Central America. Those opposed to a name change of the college, like those defending the bust, will at best acknowledge the unfortunate elements of the past, but generally state that, regardless of any such unpleasant facts, history with a capital H should be erased. But it is real but is it really being erased? And what has been indeed erased? Throughout Watsonville there are murals of turn of the century apple growers and the like, along what would be considered industrial or blighted spaces, the backside of Fox Theater, Walker Street, and elsewhere, colorful and seemingly harmless reminders of our past. Salinas Valley folks will know this brand of art and memory well. Just drive past those huge, jolly-cut figures of farmer family businesses outside of city jurisdictions. Such art serves to uphold and glorify a sanitized local history that provides legitimacy, if not power, for the agricultural real estate status quo of the valley and those who pride, whose pride is attached to that regime. In the case of the Pajaro Valley, as in all of the Americas, the first inhabitants were indigenous people. It is unpleasant to say aloud, but under Spanish California rule, these folks were hunted down by the local missions, where they and their children were enslaved until disease and or assimilation took hold. For natives, the missions were concentration camps, and what was left behind was vacant and up for grabs land, which was of course deemed terra nullius. The Spanish government would eventually become the Mexican government, who then started giving out land grants to military men, criollos, of high esteem, including the Castros, Amestes, and Rodriguez. Things got worse once the beloved 49ers arrived. 
under U.S. law, Native scalps carried monetary value. American officials didn't recognize Mexican settlers' rights, only Anglo settlers' rights, which is how Watsonville's Southern sympathizers, city founder, Judge Henry Watson, Watson, not Watson, obtained land. Soon came a host of familiar names, the Corsettis, Driscolls, Martinellis, writers, recitars, and so many others. Some amongst them, nice people, I'm sure, all colonial settlers, Irish, Italians, Anglos, Croatians, African Americans, Portuguese, Chinese, Japanese, Filipinos, North Mexicans, Southern Mexicans, Central Americans have come since. Whereas some of the above, most notably African Americans, have experienced colonialism and genocide of their own, what unites us is the Pajaro Valley, is that we are all settlers, colonos, in this indigenous land. Our crops grow out of yesterday's genocide of the Amamutsu people. And our economy grows out of today's farm worker bodies, predominantly southern Mexico. And surprise, indigenous refugees. Those who settled first were able to settle best. Colonizing this land sterilized the natives. The legendary bigwigs in town and now those whose trust funds suck wealth from town were able to colonize the land through the magical printing of real estate deeds and business contracts. First came cows and Monterey Jack cheese, then sugar beets, then eventually apples and strawberries. These turn-of-the-century settlers are the other ones who have made the big fortunes from capitalization of the terra nullius land, as well as, of course, exploitation of the ever-incoming stream of cheap immigrant indigenous labor. Many affluent folks, especially those who did daddies and granddaddies, whose granddaddies and daddies have deep roots here, dismiss notions of colonial exploitation in our own backyard and instead cite field works as some odd rite of passage. For those folks, it seems like becoming part of the Watsonville, Soledad, Hollister, or whatever other ag community requires a fraternity-style pledging. Pick your berries like the rest of us did, as if it were as easy as comparing apples to oranges. However, to reiterate, all those with actual large holdings and large business operations are able to thrive as they do those be as they do because people of color were and continue to be exploited, and fundamentally because the local Ohlone were genocided. Though, of course, many blessed brothers and sisters are still around and still resisting. Landowners and businesses have acquired such large private capital holdings because they have been able to exploit yesteryear's field workers, generation after generation, all exploited all the way back to that original moment of primitive accumulation, in which land was expropriated from the Ohlone. They who had lived in harmony with the land for a full 15,000 years. They whose afterlife was in the Milky Way lit sky. 
But that doesn't count as history. For some folks, Native history is more akin to natural history, with a lower cap lowercase h. A footnote in the local museums and fourth grade textbooks. All that said, those who feel victimized by cancel culture slanders against Washington, whose dentures were slaves stolen teeth, or Cabrillo, who made a glue for his boats with the human fat of indigenous people, will still decry and lament the erasure of history. But where were the folks when Ohlone grave sites have been? discovered and defiled local development projects? Or what about when pesticide after pesticide has been put into the earth and waterways? So Cabrillo, Washington, who is it then that we should honor if honor we must? As someone on the opposite side of the Washington and Cabrillo fans, I can appreciate that these matters don't immediately impact our everyday lives and can and should come second to, in the case of Cabrillo College, students, scholarships, building up COVID stipends and other possibilities. Critics aren't just fighting for history in the abstract though. To be clear, they're fighting for white colonial settler history. And yes, this is true, even if they are brown-skinned. They will denounce the division that activists advocate, calling instead for unity. However, this brand of unity is often marked by obvious inequalities. Unity often means brown berry pickers knowing their place, even if they work the fields under the apocalyptic background of smoky orange skies and wear masks during the middle of the COVID plague. Unity for many of these critics means head down docility and unwavering praise of men who practiced and supported genocide. So where do you draw the line, impassioned defenders of the status quo? I was personally surprised to the Washington bust, that the Washington bust was voted to be removed and hoped that Cabrillo College's name is next to go. Our line must be ever vigilant and aggressively combative towards colonization, which unfor unfortunately is all over the place. Our line needs to be discussed in community dialogue. Yes, Cabrillo died 500 years ago. And sure, Washington is the capital F father of the country. But please listen when I and others say they and their actions contributed to a world system fueled by genocide and exploitation. When I read the news, both local and international, I see that the libido of that world system is alive and well, and still throbs with a perverse lust for gold, be it from 1521 or 1849 or 2020. That predatorial brand of greed has and will forever hurt us all.
There is nothing posed about this collective post-trauma stress disorder that the Pajaro Valley and Greater Monterey Bay suffer from. Our pain is not just in the fields or in burial sites. It is the Gilroy Garlic Festival, the Boogaloo Boys, killing of a Santa Cruz deputy, Norteño versus Sudeño shootings, and mass homelessness here. Not in San Francisco or some shanty town, but here with me in Watsonville and you wherever you are. Some folk will mock the culture war battles that these debates around Cabrillo College or whatever else represent for them. But for me, they are connected to larger dialogues on culture, capital C, or otherwise. We all share a larger common ecosystem, and we have already diagnosed. We have already been diagnosed with terrible strands of hate, racism, and violence, as well as scourges of inequality and injustice. We need to talk about our collective well-being and the delivery of our healing, even if that is discomforting to do. Settler art history and institutions are not being erased, but our indigenous forebears and immigrant campesinos can't be erased either. And ultimately, that's what this dialogue is about. This dialogue is how we will heal. End of quote, end of article. And so this was written by, as I said, a professor of English at Cabrillo College. And when I read this originally, it was posted on someone's Facebook wall. And I called for dismissal of this professor from Cabrillo College. And the reason that I called for their dismissal is I felt that this overstepped the bounds of this professor's responsibility as a professor. And in the next segment, I'll explain why I called for the dismissal beyond what I just said. And I'll read to you uh, what I wrote to the college and their response. When we return, here on the Dewpoint Report, the Digital Electronic World Point Report, with your host, Margarita. And welcome back to another segment of the Two Point Report, the Digital Electronic World Point Report, where in this episode we have been continuing to explore why colleges, learning institutions, have brought up the question of whether or not they should rename their institutions of learning, particularly in the realization of if they do have names that reflect historical pasts that have complicated histories, which in some instances have egregious natures, then what would entail the renaming of an institution, and then what would they be renamed to? So as we look into that, you have already listened to some of the previous explanations as to what one particular community college has gone through and the process that it has been through in terms of its due diligence to listen to the public through a series of, through a subcommittee that was established by its board of trustees, listening sessions, 
and also through what were no less than five sessions on different subject matters from the history of the college, how it was created, the process it went through to name itself, and then the history of the area upon which where the college sits. And then also the history of colonization is a history and context to what the conversation is about. And then the history of the person that it was named after. Uh, and, and so then as we've explored that, what that means. In the most recent segment, I read you a portion, I didn't read you the entire article, but I read you a portion of an article written by a professor of English at Cabrillo College. His name is Martin Garcia. And he titled his article, which is through a blog, uh, he titled his article, Notes from Settlerville. And it's from Voices, of Monterey Bay. It's on that website. And the reason that he wrote it, he talks about it being his perspective, but why I called for his dismissal as professor at Cabrillo College is I felt that he really stepped out of line with what the process was for what he could have gone through in terms of expressing his sentiment, his feeling, his perspective on the renaming of the college. Now, what he feels in terms of the, whether or not the statue of George Washington should be moved from the Watsonville Plaza, that is totally up to him as a member of the Watsonville community. If he does indeed live in Watsonville or wants to weigh in on that, that's up to him as an individual. But his perspective on Cabrillo and its renaming and how he wove that into the article and then restructure the history of Cabrillo and some of the history of Watsonville, which isn't entirely true that those are the only um, agriculture, ag business um, ecosystems in the area. That's one concept. Also, I didn't call him out for dismissal because of the way his article was structured. I want to point that out. I called him out because I think all, all people who work in a learning institution have a responsibility to go through the process that is established within the learning institution to not only be respectful about the processes that are particular for due diligence, especially when certain uh, things are going on that are for such things that are encompassing for potential of change, such as a name change like this, where there were public hearings held, there were public meetings, there were these learning sessions where other staff did participate and they did raise questions as they felt them. And indeed, if they did want to participate, they have the ability to do so. And in going outside of the capacity of the college to be able to understand and then be able to respond accordingly, he created a completely separate voice to be able to then open. And there is no outlet to be able to respond to that officially on behalf of the college. And that 
is something that isn't fair to the college for one. It isn't fair to the students that participated in the due diligence process, the data gathering, and it isn't fair to the subcommittee that put in a great deal of time, effort, and energy in the process that was developed in accordance with what it was supposed to be in order to open and close a process that then will be voted on. And though perhaps well-intended, this professor, meaning to try to open it up to a broader audience in terms of bringing up the conversation, and perhaps even just wanting to be opinionated, he may not have realized that when he brought up other aspects of what are happening in the community, it has the potential for responses that he may or may not have the ability to respond to accordingly that have a much broader impact than he may be able to respond to. And what I mean by that is uh, take the Gilroy Garlic Festival, for example. The Gilroy Garlic Festival was a sad and unfortunate occurrence that had tragic losses, including and not limited to the loss of a Cabrillo College student. And so it hurts to the underbelly of the college itself. And so I understand why he brought it up, but most people may not that are reading this beyond the understanding of the article. But people who have gone through the pain and already healing of what happened there will see it as a reopening of wounds that have already begun to heal and won't understand why this is coming up again. And rather, it will just open up what truly is a post-traumatic stress syndrome. And, and he brings it up as PTSD, but really, he's not a, he's not a psychologist. He's an English professor or teacher. And then when he brings up the BB, does he really have the scope of understanding of what the BB is and the involvement that they had in such things as the incitements of January 6th in the hundreds of arrests that have already been made for what happened at the United States Capitol? And what is he and what is the purpose of he, him doing that? because his writing that in there is adding something that he may or may not realize is bringing in a le level of energy that, as I mentioned before, it's like adding a storm where there is a calm. And then, of course, when he brings in other subject matters, such as the the gang affiliations. He's bringing in subject matters that are high energy. They are a level of energy that are much different than what the name change perspective was immediately intending to do, which was to understand the name change. Is it necessary to have a name change? And that has nothing to do with affiliation of, um, of a gang. And so the purpose of him doing that brings in something completely different. And why am I even saying this? Because I promised you in the previous segment that I would 
let you know exactly what my response was to the college. I had told people that I would call for his dismissal. I think some people were perplexed. They thought I was overreacting as they didn't understand why I would even weigh in on such a thing. I normally don't. I'll be honest with you. I normally do not weigh in on anything administrative with the college because even as a trustee, I would defer the administrative responsibilities to the administration because my responsibility was fiduciary as a trustee. And being able to separate those is so important and pivotal. And so this is, I'm going to read to you what I wrote to the college. First, I'm going to read to you what I wrote to the Voices of Monterey Bay. To whom it may concern regarding the article on May 28th, 2021, I will be calling for the dismissal of Martin Garcia as English professor from Cabrillo College on the grounds that this scathing article is inflammatory on many levels. It does not open intellectual understanding of the circumstances surrounding the true discussions that have been taking place as to the name change consideration of Cabrillo College. Rather, it makes incendiary remarks that undermine a process that was difficult to manage and at all points was inclusive and held the public interest in mind. Cabrillo College has a vast faculty and staff and this one person's opinion is not an official opinion and should not be misconstrued as such. This LTE, letter to the editor, blog, opinion, can skew understanding of an already challenging subject such that this person is trying to give himself official capacity, which this article is not. And so then I, I closed it, saying regards with my name. And it was interesting because I actually got a rebuttal from someone on Facebook saying that they they didn't understand why I was saying what I was saying, that I would call for his dismissal. Um, someone named Jenny Russell said, Margarita, I read the article with great interest. Mr. Garcia shared his views and cited a lot of very important historical facts. Why on earth would you call for his dismissal? It's clear that he is speaking his own opinion and not trying to represent the college as a whole. I'm not inflamed by the article at all. On the contrary, I believe this type of discourse is important and allows us to understand more deeply how the truth behind our colonial history is very uncomfortable. Personally, I think the GW belongs in the library as an educational tool. And so then I responded, Jenny Russell, while I appreciate your response, as I referenced, the subcommittee established to consider the renaming of Cabrillo College has conducted its due diligence and made it 
and made its process available in albeit difficult circumstances. As the personal opinions will continue, people who are entrusted with educating young adults, including post-secondary education, know full well that there is a responsibility to be responsible in the inculcation of knowledge, such that processes are followed. As a former trustee of Cabrillo College and former trustee of Cabrillo College Foundation and former chair of the oversight board of the former redevelopment agency of the city of Watsonville, I make a point to not involve myself in the administration of the details of the college unless it is an egregious matter. I see this as an egregious matter as it sweeps together many issues that are emotional for many and creates an amalgamation of potential responses when had he gone through the process of the college where there were no such than no less than five informative sessions, his voice would have been heard within the context of the subcommittee's responsibility. As for the statue of George W., the decision to move him was also an extremely thorough process that included many meetings, perspective, perspectives, and data points, which concluded in said decision. Regards, Margarita. Career. And so that was the end of my rebuttal to Jenny Russell. And I shared that with a Cabrillo College, and they responded this. Thank you for forwarding your concerns about the article that English professor Martin Garcia has published in the online platform titled Voices of Monterey Bay. Being a supporter of free expression and First Amendment rights is something that I take very seriously. This is the college president. While you may disagree with Professor Garcia's viewpoints, I will defend his right to express them, and I cannot take the course of action you recommend. And Professor Garcia is entitled to his viewpoints, and they are closely held and grounded in his own research on the issues. He is entitled to express them, and it would be a chilling effect on First Amendment principles for me or anyone affiliated with the college to even contemplate taking action against him. I'm proud to say that I recommended his hiring by the Board of Trustees. Nothing in this article changes the assessment. He is a terrific professor. While we may disagree on that issue, I want to thank you for so faithfully attending the college's events on the naming controversy this spring. I know your interest and support for the college runs deep. And so then I'll read you a portion of what I responded to the response from the college. I did say, though I appreciate the response, the crux of my response will be on my podcast. The short of my response Clearly, Cabrillo College is not the college I would be a trustee for anymore if this is considered the terrific quality of instruction for our students, particularly with the needs for educational equity that are needed in today's instructional pedagogy. 
As a trustee for Cabrillo College, I proudly traveled in education conferences on behalf of the college, representing its best interests and interests of the students. Everyone spoke wonderfully of Cabrillo, and I believe they are correct that our college was graduating the utmost quality students in the country. As such, had I espoused anything the likes of what you are saying, your support in the blog of this professor, Martin Garcia, as he is referenced in his article, I would have been censored, censured, I mean, or removed as trustee. Having said that, after particularly, oh, uh, excuse me, uh, having said that, after what happened at the Gilroy Garlic Festival, the heightened awareness of language sensitivity to violence incitement in particularly different is particularly different than it was before. Whether because Cabrillo lost one of its students or the awareness of active shooter preparedness and who is better trained to pivot accordingly to save the most lives. Secondly, the violent attacks on the U.S. Capitol that have resulted in hundreds of arrests are a reminder of how important it is to curtail the potential, the potentiality of language that could spread frustration and anger over social media threads. That could be concerns over, that could cause concerns over unfair processes which do not flow through proper channels. From what you are saying, unofficial channels are an acceptable flow for his First Amendment rights through your recommendations that he be hired for his hiring to the college. Writings he makes outside of the college classroom setting and approved college pedagogy would be outside the purview of the First Amendment right protections, would they not? As a UCSB alum, 1996, I can tell you the University of California system is continuing to sift through claims and lawsuits put forth from students and families of students who feel the processing of their claims was not thorough enough. So it is not a moot point to ignore the aggrieved, which is why for fairness and due diligence processes, it is so essential to follow the process. So, it may sound stern, but my response was clear, I feel, that I think we have a responsibility to be appropriate in our responses and in how we write within the context of our responsibility. Um, particularly, I had some typos in my writing, so I, I reworded my um, narration right now because I had some some typos and I think to the point that I'm making is we aren't always perfect in the way we respond and so we do have to be careful in how we respond because it can be misconstrued especially when we're in the public and making comments and as I mentioned to them in one of my responses, I won't respond again to the Facebook response with the Jenny Russell response, because it is important not to overstep their administrative responsibilities. And so when I called for his dismissal, I'm not going to go beyond just having them look into it. They've already made their decision. 
they've said they'll support him and that's they're going to stick with him as a professor so that's what they feel strongly about i'm not going to ask that they look into it further i think it isn't how i feel but at the same time that they have their processes and they'll move forward. So I don't necessarily hate them for that. I think life is too short to hate people over things that one might disagree over. Sometimes in life, and that is the point here, is we may disagree with things and we don't have to necessarily turn disagreement into contentious behavior. What we have seen over the years is disagreements turn into contentious behavior because of the inability to understand where the other person is coming from. Um, there, there has been one portion I didn't read to you is because I think there's a lot of emotion behind that. But since I realize that likely no one is listening to this right now, but perhaps in five years, someone might listen to this, I'll give you an explanation. At the beginning of my response to Cabrillo, I said, and I will read this, I said, the short of my response is I forgive Cabrillo College for making me feel it's not good enough to represent the college publicly in communications. When my trusty portrait was returned to me, I was devastated as it was akin to being told I no longer belong at the very place I was proud to have represented. And so what does that mean? That means that you can forgive even the people that you feel, feel you, you can't forgive or don't make you feel that you really belong. Um, in the first administration that was there, actually the second, when I was trustee, and they were very welcoming. The first administration, when I first was appointed, I was the, I was appointed as trustee, meaning I applied to become trustee and I went through a very lengthy interview process that was on, it was televised and I had to answer questions. It was very thorough. And then when that period of time went through and I had to run for office if I was going to continue in my appointment, no one ran against me. And so I had the ability to stay there for the four years no one ran against me, so I was appointed in lieu of opposition, which is possible in my um, county, in my district. And so I continued to serve for another four years because originally when I was appointed and I applied, the person that had been in that seat, in that representation seat, had been there for 20 years and the president of the college had been there for nine years and he moved on he found another job he left and then we went through an interview process and we found a new president of the college superintendent they're called but they're not superintendents of like k through 12 they're superintendent of community college and it was so interesting process to go through to find all these talented, skilled individuals. And we hired the first female president of the college. 
And so we made history. Without a purposeful wanting to find a female president, we just knew that we were looking for the best qualified candidate. And it was interesting because being part of those moments of history, we were in the moment of history. So we were just a part of those chapters that were happening. When I walked away in 2016, I didn't walk away because I hated Cabrillo. I I walked away in the most difficult moment uh, within our family structure that uh, required me to move out of district. And there's a clause in the rules that if you move outside of the area you represent, you have to um, let go of your elected official responsibilities. And so I had to resign and I actually was on three different boards of the Cabrillo responsibilities. And so it wasn't easy for me and I gave my resignation. And a lot of people were perplexed because it kind of happened pretty quickly, but I had been having conversations with uh, the president of the college and she knew it was getting more difficult and I had to give her a heads up that this might be coming through uh, fairly soon. And I didn't want her to be surprised. And so the night that I gave my resignation, the board members, some of them were surprised. But that actually was my first night that I chaired. And I had made history as the first Latina chair of the board of trustees of Cabrillo College. And I had already made history as the youngest Latina of Cabrillo College. But I didn't really resound that very loudly. Susan True was the youngest until I showed up. Then we were about the same age. Uh, I was maybe slightly younger than her, but she she resigned and moved on because she was um, accepted for her master's at Stanford. And then I stayed on. Well, I was in a different area representing. And I continued on, so then I was the youngest on the board. So it was fascinating times that were historical in context, if you think about it, because I was the only Latina on the board for a time being. And then Christina Cuevas was um, appointed in place of Susan True. So then we were two Latinas on the board. Before that, Rebecca Garcia had been the only Latina, and she had been there for 20 years. So I replaced her after she retired. So there's a lot of history on here. And so why do I bring this up? When I said that little sentence about being forgiven, or forgiving, there was a moment where I was given my picture back. And being given my picture back is a big deal. Because you see, I used to walk those halls as a trustee of at Cessnon House, going to the meetings and seeing the history of all the other trustees who had been there since 1959, those pictures of all those people. And their images were there since 1959. And so I thought, oh, it's awesome. It's such a wonderful thing 
my image will be here and other people will see uh, the value of thinking about how important it is to set your goals on something that is so important that you value, that you want to do in life, that is policymaking, is something important. And they may, they may look to that in the future. Somebody else may look to wanting to be that as well. And so I thought that my picture would be there. Now, I didn't run for trustee because I wanted my picture on the wall. Don't get me wrong. But I literally thought of the importance of how history uh, creates a sense of legacy for others. And when I used to look at the pictures of the very first uh, board members at Cabrillo, the only woman was the secretary. And then you would look at the pictures. I would look at the pictures. Anybody would look at the pictures of the present day board members. And welcome back to the Dew Point Report, the digital electronic world point report where we talk about the duality of our existence in the digital presence and the tactile presence of our maneuvering through this world upon which where we live. Now, we've been really talking about this question of why colleges have been thinking about whether they should rename their colleges, educational institutions, or not. And it really is a complex subject, though it seems seemingly simple. Rename it or don't rename it. But the concept of why or why it should not be renamed is complex because it speaks to the rationale behind why and how institutions of education were named, who they were named after in the first place. And as this begins to be evaluated, the complexity upon which the names are derived from begins to unfold. And with that, is much emotion, is much complexity with the history of whom is behind the name. And also, though, as was discussed previously, is what has been in the past already healed. And because people begin to discuss things that were already discussed in the past previously, many don't want to talk about that again. And it is the few willing to discuss such difficult conversations that often become the subject of additionally difficult conversations because they are unfolding, unwinding, and peeling back parts of history that some perhaps don't want to be heard again. And also though, by the same token, others are celebrating the very fact that this is being brought to light again because to some, those elements of history are worth celebrating, and to others, those elements of history are not worth celebrating. So it is truly a juxtaposition of dichotomous circumstances, which unless one truly listens to both 
perspectives, and often there are more than two perspectives, it is a complex situation of situations and circumstances of circumstances. So it isn't as simple as just, all right, so rename it or don't rename it. And that is why every college or every university, every school really takes it upon themselves in a unique manner as to how they go about their due diligence process. It isn't comical. It isn't something worth five minutes of thought in process. It's actually much more than that. And when I gave the one example, I did delve into it a little more than most probably thought I ever would. And perhaps even some of you thought, oh my gosh, are you serious? We have to really think or listen about this. And some of you who probably even sat through, listened in, or watched through the additional learning sessions may have even thought to yourselves, I already listened to the learning sessions. Why should I even listen to this additional perspective? Well, you know, you can never learn too much and you can never try to understand too many additional perspectives because it is really the additional accumulation of knowledge that gives us that perspective, that wisdom, that from which then we can formulate a perspective that gives us a unique insight into how we can then formulate our own thought processes, which is different from others. It doesn't mean that it changes who we are as people, other than how we can formulate our own perspective. But if we are truly strong in our own personal foundation of who we are and our own personal value and moral upbringing, then all it does is amalgamate to who we are, make us stronger and make us deeper in our understanding to how we then make our own decisions. Case in point, if we are already understanding what our own moral set, moral values are, and we learn something new, it doesn't change our own moral values, our own belief system. All it does is allow us to understand what somebody else's moral values or value sets are. And from there, we can understand somebody else's perspective. If we don't have a clear understanding of who we are as individuals or people or community members, then when we understand somebody else's perspective, perhaps we are simply shopping for somebody else's perspective to be able to absorb their perspective. And at that point, then, all we are is amoebic in trying to absorb somebody else's perspective. And that is when all we are is a simple mirror image of what somebody else has told us. Therein lies the distinction and the difference between somebody who is steadfast in who they are and somebody who is simply absorbing somebody else. So, having said that, the reason that I went through the entire process of what one 
college, community college, has gone through in trying to understand what the naming process was for their college when it began and how it was named and what the cultural context has been in the area in order to understand not only the complexities and the simplicities of what it means to rename a college, but then also to understand how expensive it could or not be to rename a college but then also the cultural context of what it means to live in a society that is fraught with colonization and also fraught with the understanding of what it means to live in a world that is surrounded by symbolisms of colonization but then also taking it one step further i would say also taking in the perspective of what it means also to have the perspective of people who do understand what colonization has done to populations, but then also what colonization has not done, meaning there are people who understand the context of colonization, yet also feel that they very much are stronger because of colonization. And so they do not feel a sense of disdain from colonization. Rather, they have a sense of strength from the successes of what the strengths of the Spaniard victories have done. And so there are two perspectives because the Spanish did arrive on these shores, but so did other cultures. And no one has begun to speak in the same way of other cultures as they have of the Spanish. Because by virtue of the fact that we are all different cultures, and so why begin to be so negative of one culture versus another? Because what ends up occurring is when you point fingers at one culture, you are also pointing fingers at others inadvertently, without meaning to. And we have seen that throughout history in such a way that we don't mean to necessarily, do we? And we don't want to because in history, we find ourselves exhausted that we don't mean to be prejudicial, but we find ourselves prejudicial, prejudiced by our own prejudiced behavior. Because in our own upbringing, by not knowing what we don't know, we don't know what we don't know, because until we know it, we don't know it. Yet once we know it, because we know it, we have a responsibility to acknowledge it. Once we acknowledge it, though, why is it that so many are forcing others to acknowledge a sense of shame about having not known it for so long? Therein is a sense of difference about what this awakening of recent has truly done to our entire society that no other knowledge development has done before. And that is the difference.
between what sometimes in learning institutions people do with just knowledge sharing when they share something new, when they say, this is what history did, and this is what you can do by learning about it. Because in learning about it, you can develop the knowledge to decide that knowledge is important to have and to hold with the responsibility of what having knowledge is. But there's a clear difference of what this new generational responsibility has developed, which it is coupled with a shaming that has not been seen before, which is unfortunate because this shaming shouldn't have to occur. It shouldn't have to occur in the sense that people shouldn't feel like they have to answer to what their previous generations did that is so egregious that they didn't do themselves. Because it's done in the past, and what is done in the past has already been answered to. And what has occurred in the present is not something that necessarily has to be replicated toward the future, particularly when there is a learning and the type of awakenings that have occurred in modern-day societies. Because truly, there have been many awakenings, meaning learnings by present-day generations, where our current generations have a true understanding of so many wrongs that have occurred in previous generations that truly are not going to be replicated by virtue of how they are truly understood to have been wrong. And there are so many generations now that realize that that they have a sense of responsibility towards moving current generations forward. And because of that, there is a clear sense of what the world will do towards moving the planet, the world, communities towards peace in the future. Now, not every single person aligns with methodologies and pedagogies of peace. And so when I read the particular article that I did, which was from that English professor that was talking about how frustrated he was with particular process, yet how surprised he was that there had been certain resolutions, such as the moving of the one statue of George Washington into a different location, yet how he really felt the nature of the process of renaming the college should truly go towards renaming the college because of so many egregious behaviors that had occurred. He really was in a juxtaposed consternation, which he seemed to have called out so many different issues. And by virtue of how frustrated his writing was, he was writing in such a nature that was so frustrated and called out so many circumstances and issues he may or may not have realized just how many flags he was throwing up. And if he was a referee on a football field or a referee on a soccer field, say, for example, if he was a referee on a football field, he would have thrown up several foul flags. If he was a referee on a soccer field, he would have thrown up a yellow flag, a yellow flag, and a red flag for every single player on the field. And he would have been the only person standing, and no one would have been able to play the game. So my concern is... 
if he truly wanted to arrive at resolution for this particular situation, which he was trying to resolve, it seemed, at the beginning of the article, at the end of the article, though he was trying so much to arrive at some kind of reconciliation, reconciliatory moment, he lost the reader in the process, or at least he lost me as a reader in the process, by virtue of throwing all these flags. And if he was a ref in a football game, even if there was instant replay, he would have been looking at this instant replay and noticed that he himself was one of the people that caused the fouls. He got in the way of the game, and he himself caused situations and circumstances where typically he would not have needed to have made himself part of the play, part of the game. Every referee knows they need to stay away from the play of the game and let the game happen, and they are only there to observe for when there is an interruption of the game or when there is a foul, when there is an error, that's when they are called upon to make a decision. And so the point that I'm making is, as a writer in this particular instance, particularly if he is an English professor, in one of these learning institutions that he was so calling out, he had and he has a responsibility to have followed the process within the learning institution itself and to have gone through the process that the learning institution has available to be able to answer the questions that he was asking as part of the article so that the due diligence process that is meant for the public and for the college and for the administrators and for the staff and for the professors and for management to be part of the process as opposed to outside of the process. But he didn't. And processes are very important. Respectful Appropriateness Timely Words that are all appropriate Are also necessary to be utilized at the appropriate moment and it seemed as though, because this article was written so much after the process itself, that is why it seemed necessary for me to say something. And I did say something. And so I wasn't showboating, uh, getting ahead, putting the cart before the horse, 
getting excited about trying to put my name out there for any particular reason. It was truly necessary for me to say something because I saw that there were a lot of flags being thrown up when it wasn't necessary in a particular process that really had its own moment. It had its own circumstance, its own situation. And If the college is going to decide what it's going to decide and support the professor to keep the professor in his role, then that's what the college is going to decide. But I said something because I felt it was appropriate to say something. And in that particular instance, I felt that's what my responsibility was. I would expect that somebody else would if they saw something that they felt was inappropriate. But that is my response to a circumstance that I felt was out of line. Indeed, it was out of line. As I stepped down from the Cabrillo board, it was a heavy responsibility to have been on the board, but just as heavy a responsibility it is still to not be on the board. And as such, you never walk away from such a responsibility. Because once you take that oath of office, you are always responsible to look out for the individuals that are your responsibility. Yes, I walked away. I didn't walk away a coward. I walked away because people needed my attention in a much deeper way than I could have given them had I continued on the board. We don't often talk about mental health issues publicly, and sometimes you can't balance everything at the same time. We're not all jugglers in life. And so when it was necessary for me to move out of the district of my constituency, it was a heavy responsibility to decide whether I do move out of office or I do not move out of office constituency. And I did. True, where I lived at my sister's house, she said, I'd like you to leave. And I did leave. I left and therein was a big problem. Leaving meant moving out of the constituency zone. And so it wasn't an easy decision. And moving was not simple. Because I had held on to the very last remnants of what was so important to me, which was representing Cabrillo College. And letting that go, a few realized I was letting go of something so important in my life. And so then when I returned, after having stayed at another sibling's for about a year, I didn't 
ask to be put back on the board. Rather, I stayed on the sidelines as a community member. And that's all you can be sometimes, is just a community member. So sometimes you can succeed and sometimes you can fail. And you can fail at other people's expense. And you can succeed because other people strengthen your fervor to succeed. But what is so important in this instance is the reminder that though there are many who will say, it's so unimportant to talk about why colleges are questioning whether they should change their name. It actually is very important. It speaks to the fabric of our nation's foundation and our founding fathers were fathers that had a lot of faults. They had a lot of faults, just like most people in this country. Most individuals walking around have problems. Some will not want to talk about them. A few will. And interestingly enough, the few who do want to talk about them often don't want to be in the limelight. And when they are in the limelight, many don't want to listen to what they have to say. And it's at the point upon which where people are listening to them that they've already faded out of the public light, which is unfortunate. And so when we talk about the importance of some of these issues, it is essential we begin to really think about what were some of the concerns that people would have had if these founding fathers were living today? Would the circumstances that are being brought up today, have, would those circumstances have been so controversial? In today's today, they might have, but in yesterday's today, a lot of things would have been acceptable, you see. So we have to put things in context as to when they happened. And actually, there are a lot of people walking around doing very similar things today that were doing things in yesterday's to yesterday. that people just look away from, oddly. When those individuals have more stature than the other. So be very careful who you accept and don't accept for who they are.
Because to some people, you're willing to say, "That's、oh, all right. That person is okay." And then to other people, you're so willing to say, "That person is not entering my family." When actually, both people did the same thing. And when two standards are created, that's two worlds. When two worlds are created, that's two laws. When two laws are created, that's two citizenships. When two citizenships are created, that's actually discriminatory. And so here we are in the twenty first century, still creating discriminatory circumstances that actually mirror some similar situations to what was eons ago. Yet a lot of people are not willing to make that comparison, because it would not be acceptable, considering so many people are willing to stand up against so many issues that are no longer acceptable. So we have to be really truthful with ourselves on what is fair and what is not fair, because there are a lot of things that are suddenly so pious. But let's be fair, because there always have been exceptions to rules. There always have been.、But、some of them are kept so quiet that many pretend they don't even exist. But why do we pretend they don't exist? Why not just actually accept the fact that there are exceptions? And if there are exceptions, why not actually accept the fact that things do occur, and that there should be actually an understanding of how difficult those decisions are and can be, and that they aren't actually exceptions because they should be understandable. Standards, because if we lie to ourselves continuously, that things don't exist, are not true, shouldn't be there, are figments of our imagination. The file goes away anyway. Oh, that's just one of those ghost backups. Yeah. Oh, it keeps coming back, but just delete it. That file, just delete it. Yeah, it keeps coming back. It's one of those ghost backups. It doesn't really exist.、Um, if it returns every year, it does exist. I've got news for you. That's a real person. And there's a reason that that's a real person, and so the expectation that somehow 